It's Thursday, September 16th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Well, hi there. This is David Osman, again on the road for Radio Free Oz, and we are here on the steps of the Capitol Building for the unveiling of designer Yves Saint-Stoul's Midterm Modern fashion line. Uh, hi, Eve. Welcome to Washington, D.C. Well, merci, David, and hello to you, too. Yes. You know, this is a very exciting time. Upheaval is in the air. Uh-huh. The Republicans are beginning to test blood. And as you know, many of them live entirely on blood. So for them, this is a very heady time. Oh, yes. Well, it's a beheading time, too, <laughs> I think, is uh, probably what they have in mind. Uh, so are you designing for these uh, right-wingers, these hordes of right-wingers that are kind of descending on this town? No, David. Uh, no? No. These boobs. They are cut from another cloth, and it is a shot I cannot float. Uh-huh. But I have put together a line of accessories that will uh-huh. allow us to suffer through the next two years. And by that you must mean uh, some of this unusual jewelry. Uh, yes, here. the uh-huh. Bible belt. Uh, uh-huh. On both sides of the buckle you see are the lithium LEDs with continual readouts of Old and New Testament passages. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me try to follow this. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings, uh, uh, thunders, and voices. Uh-huh. That's uh, from... Uh, the revelations? Is I think it is. Right. Yeah, look inside. Uh-huh. Now look there into the mirrored buckles surrounded by the clusters of emeralds and sardine stones. What do you see? Oh, oh, my gosh. For just a second there, I thought I, I saw myself as Jesus. Well, everyone does, David. It's a holographic trick, but for the fundamentalists, a great self-esteem builder. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure it is. Well, what about the, the watch? Oh, much more than a watch. It uh-huh. is a GOP Gaydar early warning system. It glows pink and plays the village people Ooh. if any of the Republicans in the room are still in the closet. Oh, I had Ken Melman tagged a month before he came out. Oh, that's a very clever item. Okay, now, now this, what is this? A... Flimsy. It's a, a, a body suit? What, it's what's an ultra-thin, second-skin dyed the very few of John Baymer's suntan. Oh. Slip it on and fit right in with the other Georgetown barflies toasting their skyrocketing, sordid careers. You, huh? can, you can have a, an all-over tan and, 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 a, and, a, and a bespoke suit sort yeah. of at the same time. Now, David, yeah. I know you're going okay. to that tea party over at C Street Frat House. Oh, yes. You'll need some protection. Uh, I, I Try on so. this faux George Washington tricolor radio hat with antenna wig. All right, let me it go. blocks all signals from Fox, Rush Limbaugh, and Glenn Beck, and surreptitiously lets you listen to Rachel Maddow while these boobs are trying to fill your head with their useless natter. Let me see now. Uh, well, so uh, usually I get silence from yeah. these things, but oh, there she is. Yeah, She's yeah, funny, huh? She She's nice boobs. Well, no, well, other, no, I, I, I must go. A client yes, of mine is attending an affair where Sarah Palin will be appearing, that's and too bad. she wants to keep her distance, uh-huh. so. No problem. Should be wearing my new scent, KTC. KTC. It KTC? mimics Katie Couric's pheromones. It totally terrorizes Mama Grizzlies and leaves them speechless. <laughs> that must be what worked on Jan Brewer. <laughs> so long. Yes, time to dance on the airwaves. It's actually the webwaves. I guess we're broadcasting. We're webcasting here. Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. I'm Peter Bergman, your host, co-host, David Osman. And we're still in time shift mode because we do both the Wednesday and the Thursday show kind of on Tuesday. 
You know, it takes a while to get it to you. To yeah, be and put it all. Honest. We gotta put it all together yeah, and wrap it up and yeah. make everything fine. But we're still kind of you know like on tram de sefer. We're still waiting to see who's going to win all these primaries. That crazy woman in Delaware. I mean, this is the one that is beyond abstinence. Everybody's got to walk around with a chastity belt. You know, and unless they carry their birth certificate, and then they can only make make love in a certain kind of bed. I mean, that's where she's at and she's Whoa. running and she's doing well. Whoa. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I don't even want to think about the results of this election, but we'll think about them on Friday and bring you uh, what we think about them anyway. I, th- I think by the time it, November rolls around, yeah, rolls. why we're going to be right on top of it. Yes, They'll I, be right there on I top th- of the election. Now, da- David and I, of course, are multitasking because we're also preparing uh, the new Fire Sign Theater show. I was gonna say that. Well, then go ahead and talk about well, it. Well, I've been working on it the last couple of days. We have we've had a couple of meetings and uh, among amongst all of us, and uh, uh, we think we know what the show is based on. Uh, I think we're all bozos on this bus. That's the name of the new show. Is I think we're all bozos on this bus, and that is basically the that's the format of the first act. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's the Fire Signs fourth album. It's really popular with uh, uh, computer geek guys. And all the bozos. And and, and with bozos, yeah, yeah bozos. with people who like to just bozo together. I wrote a line today. <laughs> There's this terrible joke in it. Yeah. And uh, I gave you the line explaining the joke. I oh, said, no. Yeah, I see, I, you, 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 you say as babe, uh, you say, uh, yeah, I, I knew that joke because my dad uh, used to, it's on a comedy record my dad used to listen to when he was stoned. Oh, no. Self-referential. You can go to comedy hell for that, but that's no, okay. I'll live I, with it. I would only give it to you. But here's the thing. In the second You're the act, guy who says, yeah. heck no, I'm 70 years old. Come on. I, I just got an email from Austin saying that he's yep. working on a new Art of the Insane and new recipes. That's going to be in the second act. I can't wait for that. Yep. You know that Proctor's pulling all sorts of stuff out of his hat and we're going to be doing some stuff that we that you and I created for Oz we're going to do Afghan Gladiator we're going to do some Barnstormer little Eve we're going to get all the guys to do uh, um, um, uh, exorcism in your daily life derivatives yep, you know yep. it's well you know uh, the last time we did any sort of bozos was back at the 25th anniversary show and that's a long time ago 92 93 you and I were on the uh, we were on the East Coast together. We were in Washington, D.C. That's right. And doing publicity. We were on the publicity. We rounds. were on the Larry King show. That's with, right. With the, what's his name? Uh, that, that man used to write for uh, Richard Nixon sitting in the lobby and being so rude to us. Uh, so, William, uh, I keep saying. Sapphire. Sapphire. Mr. William Saf- Sapphire. Sapphire, yeah. Yeah, no. Larry, Larry King had no idea who we were for the entire 20 minutes we were there. It was no. just fine. And could no. care less. No, couldn't care less. What he you just, got there? Well, when we were back there, this this is 93. I realized the world doesn't change very much. Uh, I was writing a bunch of poems out of the newspaper and off of television. And uh, uh, this is what was going on in the U.S. Navy. They had just put out the U.S. Navy's Guide to Sexual Harassment. So I wrote this little poem. So you can become really good at it in the Navy. Yeah, yeah. Tailhook. Really quite. Really, Tailhook, really, man. It was right around that time, man. That's why this got me. So here's their traffic light analogy for sex offenders. Okay. okay? Green means go. Touching, which could not be reasonably perceived in a sexual way, such as touching someone on the elbow, showing concern, or a friendly conversation. Okay, now, 
Guess where we're going now? Yellow. Uh-oh, go yellow. Use caution, prepare for bed. Uh, red. <clears throat> Violating personal space. Ooh, ooh. Whistling. Isn't that what soldiers do all the time? <laughs> yes. Whistling. Ooh. Suggestive posters. Leering. Ooh. Staring. Unwanted poems, which gave me the name of this little <laughs> little book. Unwanted of poems. poems. Yeah, yeah. Sitting sexually. I've done that. It's good. <laughs> it's better with a partner, but it can be done alone if necessary. All right, we're up to red. This red means ding, 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 ding. stop. Don't do it. Don't. All right, here it is. Don't ask. Don't yell. Go to hell. All right. The Navy does not want you to do the following. Simulated sex acts with a blow-up doll. They don't want you to no, do that. They don't want it's to okay do that. to joystick people with drones from a distance, but don't simulate similarly titillating acts with a blow-up Taliban uh, insurgent foreign fighter, whatever they are. While yeah. drunk. While drunk. In uniform. In uniform. In public. Good. Regardless of whether women were present. If you can, if you're if you're sober enough to know. It is an egregious departure. From the conduct expected of personnel in the U.S. Navy. There you have it. Anchors away. Anchor babies away. That's who is going to be the new Navy. Anchor babies away. Uh, from Talking Points Memo, we did a story uh, a couple of Oz's before about uh, the fact that this company in Ohio was sending interpreters over to Afghanistan who didn't speak the language because they were faking their test scores and passing them when they knew they were washouts. Well, the former employee of this government contractor uh, who blew the whistle and who said that more than one quarter of the translators working in Afghanistan had failed language proficiency exams told Talking Points Memo in an interview that allegations his employer made against him after his story came out last week are untrue. Yeah, they immediately tried to smear him. They tried to smear me at the very end, and I had nothing to do with any of the problems that they might have said or accused me of, Paul Funk said. The company, Ohio-based Mission Essential Personnel, yeah, Mission Essential and Unqualified Personnel, had said that Funk resigned due to financial improprieties in his office, but Funk said the wrongdoing was committed by a subordinate that he didn't find out until, I would say, after I left. Funk is no longer in the translator's business. He's now working for another company as a military analyst and said he is trying to win the hearts and minds of the Iraqi citizens. Well, I'm not so sure about that. He said that the work of translators is essential to the United States mission in Afghanistan and that there could be severe consequences if mistakes were made. Funk said there were still unprepared translators who were going out there, faking their translation and ruining mission after mission after mission. Of this, what a... What a ship of fools, or what a, what a Humvee of fools. He said he hopes that the publicity he has brought to the issue will force reforms on the company. Because of national exposure, they're going to be forced to do their jobs properly, and that is a success for the soldiers, Funk said. Though he stands again financially if his case is successful, Funk said the lawsuit is not about him, but rather about getting the company to correct issues which are hurting the U.S. Army's mission in Afghanistan. An investigation into the allegations have been opened by the U.S. Army. Funk's suit alleges violations of the False Claims Act, which has a strong whistleblower provision which allows those accusing a company of impropriety to claim about 15 to 25% of the recovered damages. 
The Christian Science Monitor spoke with several former translators who said the Afghan language are often learned on the job, which can result in deadly mishaps and misunderstandings in the mission to win hearts and minds. More people trying to win more hearts and minds, except they they think they're saying hearts and minds in Pashtun, and they're saying bowels and butts. From the New York Times, for 17 years, Major Margaret Witt rose steadily through the Air Force and Air Force Reserves, winning plaudits from colleagues, strong performance reviews from superiors, and service medals from the department. A flight nurse, she treated wounded troops during Desert Storm and was featured in Air Force promotional materials for years. Major Witt is also a lesbian. To hide her sexual orientation, she skipped military functions where dates were invited. She dodged questions about her personal life, and she avoided inviting colleagues home lest some possession, a book, a photograph, might tip them off. You can't be honest, Major Witt, 46, said in a recent interview. I didn't want to answer questions, even to say what my weekend plans were. Her efforts to maintain a low profile ended in 2004 when the jilted husband of a woman Major Witt had started to date sent a note to the Air Force disclosing her orientation. After an investigation and hearing, the Air Force discharged her in 2007 under the policy known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Go to Hell. But her case is far from over. Major Witt sued, and in what will be one of the most closely watched challenges to the law to date, she is scheduled to appear soon in federal court in Tacoma, Washington, to argue that the Air Force violated her rights and must reinstate her. The court appearance comes at a time of growing debate about the policy. Recently, a federal judge in California ruled that the don't ask, don't tell policy was unconstitutional. Major Witt's case has already set an important precedent. After a federal judge dismissed her lawsuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Court reinstated it, ruling in 2008 that the government had to meet a higher standard of scrutiny before intruding on her private life. The panel sent her case back to the district court for trial. If Major Witt prevails in the district court, and she will become the first woman allowed to serve openly as a lesbian since Don't Tell, Don't Ask was enacted in 1993. The law, however, would continue to apply to other service members. So she'd be openly gay amongst all of her other friends, probably a quarter of whom are in the closet. She can go join them in the closet, but she's only looking for a new uniform. It's not as if she would go around telling people, said James E. Lobsens, a lawyer who, along with the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington, is representing Major Witt. But if someone asked, are you a lesbian, she could respond yes and not be thrown out. Under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the simple acknowledgement of one's homosexuality can lead to discharge. This is a ridiculous and failed policy, and it will come down, but it's still going to hurt and ruin a lot of people in the process. Shame on you, military. In its ruling, the Ninth Court said that to discharge Major Witt, the government must prove that removing her or any other individual service member is the only way to significantly advance an important policy. The ruling applies only in the Ninth Circuit, which is based in San Francisco and covers much of the West. The government has asserted that Congress firmly established that homosexual behavior undermines morale and military readiness when it enacted Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But... The Obama administration uh, didn't appeal the ruling, say it would wait until Major Witt's trial concluded in the lower court. To advocates of gay rights, Major Witt's trial will provide an unparalleled opportunity to attack the central premise of the law, that allowing gay and lesbian people to serve openly divides units and undermines military readiness. Yeah, 
Yeah, like it does. Major Witt's lawyers say former colleagues will testify that she was an effective leader and that her discharge, not her presence, hurt morale in her reserves unit, the 446th Aerial Medical Evacuation Squadron. Several of the witnesses say they suspected she was a lesbian but did not mind serving alongside her. Major Witt said she had considered herself a lesbian nearly from the time she joined the military, but managed to keep it secret until 2004 when she began the affair that triggered her investigation. The woman with whom she was having the affair left her husband and remains Major Witt's partner today. I had to save this one for you, Dave. I couldn't do this one alone. I would have enjoyed it, of course, but it's going to be even more fun now. We're talking about the one of the most interesting wingnuts, and he's been with us for a while, and that's the Newt. The Newt is back. Yeah. Yep. This is the man who, you know, who, who, who created the contract on America, who really helped engineer that takeover of the house in 94, who looked like a real rising star, a man who had also uh, divorced his wife on, on, on her cancer bed. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an odd, odd character, but he blows hot and cold. Sometimes he'll say things that are really quite incisive, and then he'll go completely, and he's gone completely off his rails now. This whole Muslim thing now, he's, he's, he's warning the world, you know, the, the American world against the Muslims, but this is going even further. Citing a recent Forbes article by Dinesh D'Souza, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich told the National Review Online, that's the right-wing blog, right. that President Obama may follow a Kenyan anti-colonial worldview. Gingrich says that D'Souza has made a stunning insight into Obama's behavior, the most profound insight I have read in the last six years about Barack Obama. What if Obama is so outside our comprehension that only if you understand Kenyan anti-colonial behavior can you begin to pierce through his actions, Gingrich asks. This is the most accurate predictive model for his behavior. What the hell is he talking about? <clears throat> this is a person who is fundamentally out of touch with how the world works. He's talking about Barack mm -hmm. Obama. Yeah. Who happened to have played a wonderful con as a result of which he is now president, Gingrich tells a wonderful us. wonderful con. So he got there as a wonderful con. I think mm -hmm. he worked very hard at being a person who is normal, reasonable, moderate, bipartisan, transparent, accommodating, None of which is true, Gingrich continues. Oh, okay. In the Alinsky tradition, he was being the person he needed to be in order to achieve the position he needed to achieve. He was authentically dishonest. Obama is in the great tradition of Edison, Ford, the Wright brothers, Bill Gates. He saw his opportunity and he took it. This guy's just nuts. This is just, we're still nuding here. We're still nuding. Ah, okay. Will Gingrich take it back in 2012? The American people may take it back, in which case I may or not may not be the recipient of that. But I have zero doubt the American people will take it back. Unlike Ford, the Wright brothers, etc., this guy's invention did not work. What is he saying? Take it back. Take what back? What is he is talking there a, about? Is there a subject May to this? Take sentence? it back. I don't know. Take what? The country back? Uh, it yeah. doesn't work. Well, he, here's what, you know, here's the thing. Dinesh D'Souza. I mean, isn't that was the end of history guy, right? I think so. I think, I think that's who that was. Anyway, right, right wing uh, theo, theologian, right, right yeah. kind of guy. Um, okay. The worldview of a Kenyan... Anti-colonials. Anti-colonials, which would be anybody who was born in Kenya under British We're talking Mau Mau. Rule, We're right? talking Mau Mau thinking. Okay. 
Huh. Right. Anti-colonial thinking. Is it Mau Mau thinking? Does anybody out there remember who the Mau Mau was? Mm, yeah, it was pretty much of. 60s, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was 60s. And it was, they, they, were, they were a violent opposition to British colonial rule, yeah. and they succeeded. And, they, they it, and, it, and it worked, and it worked in Rhodesia, and it worked in a bunch of other places. But here's the thing that gets me. He says, he describes... Obama as normal, I, reasonable, yeah. moderate, bipartisan, transparent, accommodating. This is wonderful. Yeah, this is yeah. basically who he is, yeah. kind of. It's why we people love him, which none of which is true. He says it's all a, a fabulous scam. No, he said it was a, uh, a, a, a an authentic lie. Authentically dishonest. Authentic, an authentic lie, in other authentic words. Lie. An authentic lie. There's some, there's, let's parse that sentence for a while. No, it's uh, the, uh, it, I would, and I expect someone will get to Newt, and it would be interesting to follow up on this story. We will give him a give him a Skype, man. He'll talk to you, and ask him, ask him what result having the worldview of a, a anti-colonial Kenyan would have. And is he talking about mm, the? Health plan? I was going to say yes. Which I heard on the news today somebody called the Obama health plan. It was Congress's health yeah, plan. Right. Everybody else wanted single payer. Right. Only Congress went with the 14,000-page health plan. Yeah, but it would take a Kenyan to create the health plan. I mean, it's just way yeah, yeah, Anti-colonialist. Now, an anti-colonialist point of view would be pro-American, would it not? Of course, anti-colonial. But on the other hand, we're acting like colonialists abroad. It's just too fakakta for me to even deal with. From the AP, Senate Republicans will oppose any effort to renew soon-to-expire Bush administration tax cuts if upper-income taxpayers are excluded from the reductions. Hmm. So they won't renew the tax cuts unless the wealthy get it. This is a whole new convolution. A spokesman for Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell said that every Senate Republican has pledged to oppose President Barack Obama's tax-cutting plan. Obama would renew the tax cuts for most people, but let the top income tax rates rise back to almost 40% on family or small business incomes over $250,000. McConnell said a bill extending the tax cuts for only low- and middle-income earners cannot pass the Senate. 41 senators can block a bill with a filibuster, but McConnell spokesman Don Stewart declined to say whether all 41 Republicans would support a filibuster. It is possible maybe that Voinovich from Ohio will vote with the Dems and the Blue Dogs will come back to their party, although Nelson has been making all kinds of bitch sounds. A recent Gallup poll reveals that 44% of the American people want them ex- those tax cuts extended only for those people under 250000 and 15% think all the tax cuts should go away. House GOP leader John Boehmer said he would support renewing tax cuts for the middle class, but not the wealthy, if that was his only choice. So now we've got the Senate and the House beginning to split apart. wonder where the tan man came up with that one. Democrats are worried that November elections could hand the GOP control of the House and perhaps the Senate. The White House and its Democratic allies hope to use the tax cut fight to cast themselves as defenders of the middle class and Republicans as a party eager to revive the days of the still unpopular former President George W. Bush. We're going to take the next 
50-some days to convince the public that's exactly what the Republicans would do. Back to the Bush policy, said White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs. Gibbs said the middle class should not be used as a political football by Republicans maneuvering to give tax cuts to wealthy taxpayers. And he said they don't need the reductions. Republicans say pairing uh, taxes for the wealthy would encourage them and the businesses they operate to create jobs. Well, research points to just the opposite, buddy. The rich tend to save what extra gravy they can suck off the public teat. Ah, yes, I say time to eat the rich. Hello, Ozeneers. That's what I call the couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. Here's one from Time Magazine that's a real go figure. One of the most contentious issues in the vast literature about alcohol consumption has been the consistent finding that those who don't drink tend to die sooner than those who do. The standard Alcoholics Anonymous explanation for this finding is that many of those who show up as abstainers in such research are actually former hardcore drunks who have already incurred health problems associated with drinking. But a new paper in the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research, suggests that for reasons that aren't entirely clear, abstaining from alcohol does tend to increase one's risk of dying, even when you exclude former problem drinkers. The most shocking part? Abstainers' mortality rates are higher than those of heavy drinkers. Moderate drinking, which is defined as one to three drinks a day, is associated with the lowest mortality rates in alcohol studies. Moderate alcohol use, especially when the beverage of choice is red wine, is thought to improve heart health, circulation, and sociability, which can be important because people who are isolated don't have as many family members and friends who can notice and help treat health problems. It also leads to depression, which also lowers, you know, your life expectancy. Even after controlling for nearly all imaginable variables, socioeconomic status, level of physical activity, number of close friends, quality of social support, and so on, the researchers found that over a 20-year period, mortality rates were highest for those who were not current drinkers, regardless of whether they used to be alcoholics, it was second highest for heavy drinkers and lowest for moderate drinkers. Even though heavy drinking is associated with higher risk for cirrhosis and several types of cancer, particularly cancers in the mouth and esophagus, heavy drinkers are less likely to die than people who don't drink even if they never had a problem with alcohol. One important reason is that alcohol lubricates so many social interactions, and social interactions are vital for maintaining mental and physical health. The authors of the new paper are careful to note that even if drinking is associated with longer life, it can be dangerous, it can impair your memory severely, it can lead to non-lethal falls and other mishaps, like, say, cheating on your spouse in a drunken haze, that can screw up your life. There's also the dependency issue. If you become addicted to alcohol, you may spend a long time trying to get off the bottle. Nonetheless, if the study is right, make mine a double.
Times Magazine. Movies inspired by America's contemporary wars have consistently been box office flops. Even The Hurt Locker grossed only $16 million in theaters, although, you know, it's like big oh, Academy Award thing, sizzle, sizzle. Didn't make any money. People don't usually like to see, you know, stuff about 
current wars. They love to go back and, and fight World War II again. Video games that evoke our current conflicts, on the other hand, are blockbusters. During the past three years, they have become the most popular fictional depictions of America's current wars. Last year's best-selling game was called Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which opens in Afghanistan, is a sequel to a multi-million selling 2007 game that features an American invasion of a nameless Middle Eastern country. Aren't they all nameless Middle Eastern countries to most of the people? Modern Warfare 2 has made Avatar-like profits for its studio, Activision. On the day the game was published in November, it sold nearly 5 million copies in North America and Britain, racking up $310 million in sales in 24 hours. By January of this year, the game's worldwide sales added up to a billion dollars. For years, earlier installments of the Call of Duty franchise and other military shooters, that's the video game's uh, term for these games, uh, were like cable TV miniseries produced by Tom Hanks, always about World War II. But the Modern Warfare series has demonstrated that players have an appetite for games that purport to connect them to the wars their college roommates or their sons might be fighting in. These are the modern versions of training games. We're preparing more shock troops for the Empire. That's what it's all about. I, I, I was in the game business at one point. I wrote a very su successful comedy parody called Pissed, which was a parody of Mist. I sold 250,000 copies over uh, Christmas one year, and I went to the, the big game show, and it was dominated by the army who wanted to get people in who were gamers to see if they had the fingers to joystick things properly. Everybody was in camo. It was revolting. Both modern warfare games are set in a mythical near future, but the weapons, Predator drones, AC-130 gunships, nukes, clearly conjure Afghanistan and Iraq, as do the game's good guys, Americans and British, and bad guys, terrorists. The appeal of this quasi-fictional setting is one reason that Modern Warfare 2 now sits alongside titles from more famous franchises like Grand Theft Auto, which is just this violent, awful thing, and Super Mario, which is nice and silly, on the list of top-selling video games ever made. The one war game at the expo he was at, E3, that's the expo I was at, at, which is the big game expo, that acknowledged the ripped from the headlines nature of its setting was Medal of Honor. The latest iteration of a game franchise created in 1999 by Steven Spielberg in the wake of Saving Private Ryan as a World War II game for DreamWorks Interactive. The new game... It is delving into the very recent past. The game will be set in Afghanistan in the early stages of the American intervention there. Hey, does Stevie know what's going on? Maybe somebody ought to phone home and tell him so he can take responsibility for this depredation. In the darkened room at the expo, PlayStation 3s were hooked up to HDTVs so that a team of players, of which the author was a member, could insert themselves into the avatars of coalition soldiers in the Helmand Valley and do battle with Taliban fighters. On the convention center floor, I adopted the role of a Taliban insurgents in the ruins of Kabul, shooting at coalition, read, American troops in a team death march mode. Whatever the hell that means. 
The Medal of Honor story begins chronologically just before the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. In the opening sequence, the camera, gamers describe the perspective you see in a game as the camera, even though video games are not really a lens-based medium, descends through the Earth's atmosphere towards Afghanistan, passing communication satellites that give off the sounds of Al-Qaeda chatter and of news broadcasts from lower Manhattan. This is pure 1984-style propaganda. Who is going to re-educate all these kids that grow up on this filth. This is the real pornography. It ends up killing people. From there, the game places the player in the body of a member of a Navy special operations team infiltrating the Taliban-held town of Gardez, Afghanistan. Medal of Honor later puts players behind the eyes of an Army special operations soldier, as well as an Army ranger and an Apache helicopter gunner. Oh, that's nice. Up there with WikiLeaks as they seize Bagram Air Force from the Taliban. I didn't realize the Taliban controlled Bagram Air Force Base. They ride all-terrain vehicles through the Shaikot Valley, snipe Al-Qaeda fighters near the mountains of Takurgar, and more. One of the buzzwords tossed around frequently by the Medal of Honor team is authenticity. Well, these people are authentically morally corrupt. The game has more than 50 actors, further giving support to the definition of actors as people who will do anything for money, delivering thousands of lines of dialogue with foreign dialogue recorded in Pashto, Gulf Arabic, and Chechen, certainly not by the people sent over by that Ohio interpreting company, because they can't speak no Pashto at all. To create some of the animation used in the game, Medal of Honor's computer graphics team examined videos from Afghanistan that are posted on sites like YouTube and LiveLeak. They should look in the mirror and they should study themselves. We want the player to feel not like they're in a movie, but like they're in Afghanistan, Waylon Brink, the computer graphics supervisor for the game, told the author. Why, this leprosy white skin couch potato nerd. He's never been to Afghanistan. Why don't you send him over there and let him sweat it out a bit? The scale of the effort devoted to this can be mind-boggling. Using more than 100 microphones, audio engineers recorded actual weapons fire at Fort Irwin in California in a mock Iraqi village used by the military for training. With the Pentagon's permission, the audio team attached microphones to Apache helicopters and recorded the sounds of takeoffs and landings, as well as the sounds of helicopters firing their rounds. They even hooked microphones up to the targets that the helicopters destroyed. This is insane! During one of the game's levels, as the rangers approach the Shaikot Valley in a helicopter, one of them describes the flight's main course as all-you-can-eat Taliban. This is, this is the strikers who are killing them, killing them innocent people and taking their fingers. Why don't they call this finger of honor? And adds, hope you like foreign foods. Within sight of the Pakistani border, a ranger says, we'll be going there soon enough. This is, this is insane propaganda. Does Barack Obama know what's going on? Is he playing this game? At another moment, a character brags that we're going to make it farther than the Russians did. The game ends with a dedication written by its consultants who are veterans of the special operations community. Oi, Gavalt. This one from the belly of the Daily Beast. Cuba has announced it would lay off at least half a million state workers over the next six months and simultaneously allow more jobs to be created in the private sector as the socialist economy struggles to get back on its feet. 
The plan announced in state media confirms that President Raul Castro is following through on his pledge to shed more than one million state jobs, a full fifth of the official workforce, but in a shorter time frame than initially anticipated. Our state cannot and should not continue maintaining companies, productive entities, and services with inflated payrolls and losses that damage our economy, create bad habits, and distort workers' conduct, the CTC, Cuba's official labor union, said in newspapers run, of course, and owned by the state. So the people who are talking about people losing their jobs are the very people who are writing about it are losing their job. Castro has announced layoffs uh, in August but said they would occur over the next five years. At the time, he said the government agreed to broaden the exercise of self-employment and its use as another alternative for the employment of those excess workers. The drastic and unprecedented economic changes have many Cubans worried that jobs they had long taken for granted under the communist government will no longer be guaranteed. Others are hopeful they will have more freedom to set prices and earn more than the average state wage of $20 a month. The state currently controls more than 90% of the economy, running everything from ice cream parlors and gas stations to factories and scientific laboratories. Traditionally independent professions such as carpenters, plumbers, and shoe repairmen are also employed by the state. State media recently did not give details about where private enterprise would be allowed to grow or which sectors would suffer layoffs, but did talk about which areas are still strategic. Within the state sector, it will only be possible to fill the jobs that are indispensable in areas where historically the labor force is insufficient, like agriculture, construction, teachers, police, industrial workers, and others. Hey, since when have there been too few farmers in Cuba? Castro has launched a few small free market reforms since taking over from his brother Fidel in 2006. In April, for example, barber shops were handed over to employees who pay rent and tax but charge what they want. Licenses have also been granted to private taxis. So you can take a private taxi to a private barber shop, close your eyes, and think you're in America. Okay, Peter, just to show you that I don't only read the New York Times to bring in news items of oh, interest so to the say. show. So, so I said, well, say. I'm on I'm on Rick and Grassi's uh, wonderful uh, list, his really good list. Rick's slogan is, if you want to create a new culture, throw a better party, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Anyway, this uh, this came over today. It was It's from Truth Dig and uh, a blog by Chris Hedges. I'll read you the opening couple of paragraphs. It's mostly about Ralph Nader, whose name is back again. I thought this would be an interesting time to hear what Ralph has to say. But here's Chris Hedges' opening paragraph, or shall I say, full frontal assault. There are no longer any major institutions in American society, including the press, the educational system, the financial sector, labor unions, the arts, religious institutions, and our dysfunctional political parties, which can be considered democratic. The intent, design, and function of these institutions, controlled by corporate money, are to bolster the hierarchical and anti-democratic power of the corporate state. These institutions, often often mouthing liberal values, abet and 
perpetuate mounting inequality. They operate increasingly in secrecy. They ignore suffering or sacrifice human lives for profit. They control and manipulate all levels, uh, all level levers, levers of power and mass communication. They have muzzled the voices and concerns of citizens. They use entertainment, celebrity gossip, and emotionally latent public relations lies to seduce us into believing in a Disney World fantasy of democracy. Yeah, that's true. That's that's the new, brand new, happy American fascism, corporate fascism. And yeah, that's under which we are suffering. And Barack is not its leader. No, he is caught up in the fact that he took office after it was eight years of ripe, but uh, and he can't change it overnight, nor will he be able to change it almost entirely. It would take a spiritual revolution from the American people. It certainly ain't going to come from the people inside that description. Well, Chris Hodges took an interview with uh, Ralph Nader, who, of course, spoiled an election a few years back. And uh, uh, Ralph, this is some of what Ralph had to say. The Tea Party movement is, as Nader points out, a conviction revolt. Most of the participants in the Tea Party are not poor. They're small business people and professionals. They feel something is wrong. They see that the two parties are equally responsible for the subsidies and bailouts, the wars and the deficits. They know these parties must be replaced. The corporate state, whose interests are being championed by Tea Party leaders such as Palin and Dick Armey, is working hard to make sure the anger of the movement is directed toward government rather than corporations and Wall Street. And if these corporate apologists succeed, a more overt form of corporate fascism will emerge without a socialist counterweight. Ah, uh-huh. there you go. Thank you, Uncle Ralph. <clears throat> he goes on, the corporate state is the ultimate maturation of American-type fascism, Nader said. They leave wide areas of personal freedom so that people confuse, can confuse personal freedom with civic freedom. The freedom to go where you want, eat where you want, associate with who you want, buy what you want, work where you want, sleep when you want, play when you want. If people have given up on any civic or political role for themselves, there is a sufficient amount of elbow room to get through the day. They do not have the freedom to participate in the decisions about war, foreign policy, domestic health and safety issues, taxes, or transportation. That is its genius. But one of its Achilles heels is that the price of the corporate state is a deteriorating political economy. They can't stop their greed from getting the next morsel. The question is, Ralph Nader ends, at what point are enough people going to have a breaking point in terms of their own economic plight? At what point will they say enough is enough? When that happens, is a Tea Party enough? or a Senator La Follette, or a Eugene Debs type? Are they enough? I think the two countervailing forces of freedom are the Internet, which no one can own, regardless how hard they try, and the community, the small community, because of the ability to communicate with each other, because of the extraordinary amount of tools available to us. We can use the small community and the Internet to regain our freedom. I know that sounds very optimistic. It's a call to action, etc., like that. But that's where I lay it. Gee, it's better than, oh, oh uh, being under the corporate states. Oh, I'm suffocating. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark channel to figure he's gone. Then I switch it back.
This is from Up Against the Wall Street Journal. The Obama administration is set to notify Congress of plans to offer advanced aircraft to Saudi Arabia worth up to $60 billion, the largest U.S. arms deal ever, and is in talks with the kingdom about potential naval and missile defense upgrades that could be worth tens of billions of dollars more. That's great. This is great. Thank you, Barack. Support the corrupt and wildly unproductive American defense industry and put more superweapons in the hands of the cabal that took down the Twin Towers. The administration plans to tout the $60 billion package as a major job creator, supporting at least 75,000 jobs, according to company estimates, and sees the sale of advanced fighter jets and military helicopters to key Middle Eastern ally Rija as a part of a broader policy aimed at shoring up Arab allies against Iran. Hey, were any Iranians aboard those planes on 9-11? They were all screwing Saudis. The $60 billion in fighter jets and helicopters is the top-line amount requested by the Saudis, even though the kingdom is likely to commit initially to buying only about half that amount. We are so broke we are willing to sell to anyone, especially that clique that turns on and off one of the world's largest oil spigots. In a notification of Congress expected to be submitted soon, the administration will authorize the Saudis to buy as many as 84 new F-15s. What in the hell are they going to do with 84 F-15s except give every prince a license? Upgrade 70 more and purchase three types of helicopters, 70 Apaches, 72 Blackhawks, and 36 Little Birds, officials say. Give them all the deadly toys they want as long as it's cash on the barrel head. And you know what those barrels are filled with. Talks are also underway to expand Saudi Arabia's ballistic missile defenses. The U.S. is encouraging the Saudis to buy systems known as THAAD, Thermal High Altitude Defense, and to upgrade its Patriot missiles to reduce the threat from Iranian rockets. Who else is going to buy this crap? And what are they talking about? When has Iran threatened the Saudis? This is bullshit in the service of real state socialism. The defense industry, that's state socialism. We pay for everything and we get nothing back. U.S. officials say the Israelis are increasingly comfortable with the Saudi sale because the planes won't have certain long-range weapon systems. Also, the Israelis are in line to buy a more advanced fighter, the F-35, and should begin to receive them around the same time the Saudis are expected to start getting the F-15s. We appreciate the administration's efforts to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge, and we expect to continue to discuss our concerns with the administration about the issues, said Michael Oren, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Oh, let's just dig the hole deeper and deeper. The Saudis are the lovely buzzards who gave us the Wahhabi way of life, and we're giving Israel super weapons and trying to broker peace simultaneously. What a charade! Well, that's it. Here's your keys. Goodbye, friends, and happy motoring. This beauty is from the uh, Charlotte Observer via the Daily Beast. A Concord man was charged with describing how to make explosives in an effort to bomb an abortion clinic after FBI agents found instructions on the man's Facebook page and caught him in a sting last week. Justin Carl Moose. That's right, Moose, 26, is a self-described extremist radical and the Christian counterpart of Osama bin Laden, according to an affidavit filed by FBI agents. That's what, yeah, you know who I am? I'm a Christian counterpart of Osama bin Laden. Dig me. 
His arrest followed an investigation that began after Planned Parenthood alerted the FBI to a Facebook page registered to Moose, which the group said was advocating extreme violence against abortion providers. Agents began monitoring the page and Moose's private messages. They said he collaborated last week with a confidential informant to plan the bombing of an abortion clinic in North Carolina. What a bad idea. You know, haven't you got anything else to do with your weekends, Moose? Moose's Facebook page, which was still public, contained posts expressing anger at abortion doctors, President Barack Obama's health care plan, and plans to build a mosque near Ground Zero in New York City. It also included expressions of support for those who have killed abortion providers. Whatever you may think about me, you're probably right, he wrote on his Facebook page, according to the affidavit. There's some deep thinking. Whatever you may think about it, me, you're probably right, because I'm not thinking at all. Extremist? Radical? Fundamentalist? Yep. Terrorist? Well, I prefer the term freedom fighter. No, I prefer wacko terrorist. The death care bill passed last night, he wrote, when Obama's health care plan was approved in March. Keep your phone and rifle close and wait. And we have Sarah Palin to thank for the death squad bill lies, right? Well, so uh, when are we going to hold her accountable? She's part of all this pus and poison. There are few problems in life that can't be solved with a proper application of high explosives. This is Moose wrote two months uh, later in Facebook. That's good. There's, you know, either a bullet or a ballot, there will be a reconciliation or reconstruction, whatever those Tea Party people say. If a mosque is built on ground zero, it will be removed Oklahoma City style. Tim's not the only man out there who knows how to do it. The affidavit says he wrote in July in reference to Tim McVeigh, who bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City and got the needle for it. In August, the affidavit says Moore posted detailed instructions for making TATP, an acronym for an explosive like that used by terrorists in the 2005 London subway bombings. FBI agents obtained search warrants and started reading his private messages. In one sent to a fellow abortion opponent, agents say Moose wrote, I have learned a lot from the Muslim terrorists and have no problem using their tactics. Just like the Muslim terrorists have no problem using our television, our media, our tactics. Hey, it's crossover time! On September 3rd, agents put their plan in motion. Their confidential source phoned Moose and told him that his best friend's wife was going to have an abortion. FBI agents recorded the call. Say no more, Moose said, according to the affidavit. I understand, and I can help. What? What's he going to do? Perform an abortion? On Friday, September 4th, the confidential source met Moose at the TGI Friday's restaurant at Concord Mills, the affidavit said. Abortion bomber and undercover agent meet for a bubbly at the TGI Friday's. Thank God he's a terrorist. There... In a conversation recorded by the FBI, Moose described several bombs the source could make in order to destroy the abortion clinic the woman was planning to use. Moose also gave the source advice on how to conduct surveillance. Now get this, he's really... He told the source to drink several beers and stagger around the clinic pretending to be drunk. If authorities confronted him, Moose explained the man could tell them he was just looking for a place to urinate. On the president. Finally... On September 5th, the confidential source called Moose again and said he had obtained the chemicals to make the explosive TATP. Moose talked him through the process of making the explosive and answered his questions, the affidavit says. Moose was arrested two days later. A neighbor said she saw unmarked cars and FBI agents with guns drawn around the house that day. 
Well, it's open season for moose. Well, the primaries will come and go, and there'll be the 10,000 dummies playing with the 10,000 things out there, as the Taoists say. And I love them all, respect them all, and make fun of them all. But when we get to Tang, David, I, I, I become respectful. I, I go to another mood. Well, this is a mood. This is a, a musical mood. Ah. These are, are a, a two-part poem called Magic Strings. I don't, I don't know that I like the title as much as I like the poems, but I, um, imagine that the words are music. They are anyway. And who, and who is our author here? Oh, the author of this one. Oh, Who's gosh, our, I haven't marked him up. This is, uh, this is Lee Ho. Lee Ho. Lee Ho. Oh, okay. Here All we right. Go. Magic strings, a two-parter. Here's part one. The sun slips down behind the western mountains. Hills to the east vanish. The wind is driving horses through the clouds. The painted lute, the reed flute, plays soft, rapid notes. A brocade skirt rustles through October dust. Breeze flutters the cassia leaves. Seeds fall. A blue fox weeps blood for her dead mate. Riding the golden-tailed dragons painted on ancient walls, the rain god leaps into the pools of autumn. A hundred-year-old owl changes into a forest demon. Laughter. Green fire in the nest. And here's part two of this lute song. The witch pours her libation. The wine sizzles and clouds gather in the sky. Sweet fumes from the coals in the jade brazier. Sea gods and mountain demons take their seats. Votive papers crackle in the wind. Her passion wood lute is inlaid with a golden phoenix. Plucking it, she screws up her face, muttering in time to the harsh chords. She calls the stars and the dim gods to her cup and dish their feast. When demons are feeding, men shudder. The sun crawls over the mountains. The gods are all around, almost visible. Their anger and pleasure leap across her tranced, twitching face. Then they mount their chariots and ride, a swirling host, back to their distant mountains. What a great way to end the show! <laughs> See you all tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow! <laughs>